Almost a year on from the start of the war in Ukraine, Kyiv's Western allies have pledged state-of-the-art tanks for the first time. From the German-engineered excellence of the Leopard 2 tanks to the British Challenger 2, complete with, what else, a kettle for making tea, these new war machines will replace the Soviet-era vehicles Ukraine has been using to hold off the Russian advance. But with fears of a Russian spring offensive looming large on the horizon and the Kremlin insisting that the donated tanks will burn just like all the others, Ukraine's allies face a race against time to get the tanks to the front lines. Welcome to the iPodcast. I'm Molly Blackall, and this week we're taking a closer look at the implications of the strategic move by the West. Later, we'll be taking a visit to one of the UK's most beloved rivers and exploring why experts say it's facing a severe threat. But first, let's find out what the tank donations will mean for the trajectory of the Ukraine war. I'm joined now by our chief reporter, Kahal Milmo, and senior reporter, Serena Sandu. Thank you both so much for joining us. Hello. Hi, Molly. Kahal, who is sending these tanks and how many is Ukraine going to receive? The tanks are coming principally from three countries in the first instance. We have Germany, the United States and Britain. The precise numbers that will end up there, well, that's a matter for debate. I mean, the Ukrainians are talking about having pledges for more than 300, but it's unclear exactly where those are coming from and who is supplying them. For what we know so far, we have 14 coming from Germany, the same number coming from the UK and 31 from from America. But should emphasize that is the sort of the initial the initial batch there are strong expectations there'll be significantly more than that to come. So what's the significance of these donations, particularly for Germany, which can have a knock-on effect, can't it, Carl, on other EU countries sending their tanks? Absolutely right, yeah. The big name here is Germany, because the particular type of tank that the Germans are able to provide, it's called the Leopard 2, is a big export success for the Germans. It's very well regarded and has been sold to a lot of countries, in particular countries in Europe. And the key point here is that the Germans have to give permission, if you like, for any other country to hand over their leopard tanks to Ukraine. And this is now what's happened. Um, They've not only said that they are going to deliver a number of their own tanks, but also it will allow other countries, and Poland is probably the first in the queue, There are other countries that are said to be looking at it, Spain, Norway, the Dutch as well, to give their tanks to the Ukrainians, thereby increasing significantly the numbers that are going to be available to the Ukrainian forces. And Kahal, why is this such a crucial moment? We've heard rumours for a while, haven't we, of a spring offensive by Russia. Is this likely to be linked to that? Yes, I mean, it's interesting. There are probably two aspects to this. I mean, you're right, this has been a long time in in the making. There's been a fair amount of criticism of Germany for what is perceived to be foot-dragging on their part. 
there are a fair number out there who think that the Germans just taken too long in this process. And part of the reason it's taking perceived as having taken too long is this expectation or probability that the Russians are planning something for the improved weather conditions that come around the time of spring in terms of renewed offensive and that the Ukrainians need these weapons to be able to deal with that offensive, to repulse, hopefully, whatever the Russians are going to try. And these weapons, they're more advanced than anything else that has been used in the conflict so far, will give the Ukrainians a certain extra advantage in trying to deal with whatever the, um, the Kremlin has planned. Serena, let's talk a bit more about the skills of these tanks. Lots of readers will no doubt have heard over the past few days talk about Leopards and Challengers and Abrams, but what can these tanks offer and what is the difference between them? The first thing to say is that they are the main battle tanks for their respective countries. So in that in that sense, you know, they're the creme de la creme of what the country has to offer. Depending on who you talk to, They will have different preferences over which tank is best. A former British Army commander obviously loved the Challenger 2 for obvious reasons. (laughs) So let's start with the Leopard 2. The German army says it's characterised by its lethality, mobility and protection and enhances the striking power of the armoured forces. Came into service in 1979 and has a maximum speed of about 43 miles per hour. On to the Challenger 2, which is the British Army's main battle tank. What our big boast is that it has never experienced a loss at the hands of the enemy. And that's partly down to this world-class armour, which is called Chobham armour or Dorchester armour, I believe. The British Army admits that it's slower than some of its rivals from other countries, but they say its accuracy more than makes up for that. And then um, you've got the Abrams, which has kind of been described to me as this kind of great all-rounder, which is from the US. But it has its own problems in that it requires a lot more fuel. There's a bit of uncertainty over how it will go on certain um, terrains as well. And Serena, one of the defining characteristics of the Challenger 2 is having a kettle, which is perhaps the most British addition to a war machine that's ever, ever come about. Well, quite. I mean, I think it just kind of highlights that wherever you are in the world, all you really want is a cup of tea, even if you're being shot at. <laughs> so it's it's not quite a kettle. Um, having looked at photos of it, it it looks more like a, I don't even know how to describe it, a kind of small little tank of its own. It's called a boiling vessel, BV, to those who use it. And it's obviously not just for tea. You know, you can make coffee too, but you know, it's, it's, it's about, you know, you can heat up food and boil in the bag and on the go meals rather than having to kind of essentially park up the tank and leave. You can kind of do it on the go. And again, the former British Army commander that I spoke to, he says you know, it's really great for morale among troops. And actually, it's a bit of an envy, according to other commanders he's spoken to from different countries. So it's got an actual strategic use rather than just symbolically being extremely British. Exactly, exactly. Okay, okay. And what kind of impact could these tanks have on the course of the war in Ukraine? So as I understand it, all eyes are on the Leopard 2s because whilst 
the differences between them and the other tanks might be negligible. Some might say they're better or worse, whatever. The point is that Ukraine is more likely to be able to accrue a large number of the Leopard 2s from, if we go back to what Carl was saying, the obviously Germany has started the imports of them and a lot of other European countries have now been given the green light to follow. So even if it's not, you know, the top, top tank, having battalions made up of the same tank will be really helpful for Ukraine, partly because the soldiers can be properly trained on this type of tank. And then also when it comes to kind of battle wear and tear and support, there's going to be a lot of that because these tanks are operated by a lot of countries. Kahal, what's your read on how important these could be to the picture on the ground in Ukraine? Yeah, I mean, I think we have to be careful here a lot. What we're hearing a lot is that these tanks aren't by themselves going to somehow change the course of the war. They're a very useful addition to what is available to Ukraine. But, you know, we shouldn't be sort of bigging them up as um, as some sort of ultimate weapon. That said, they do have the potential to be ex- extremely useful because these tanks, as, as Serena says, that the creme de la creme of what the West can offer. And by dint of that, they have the sort of technology that we're led to believe is considerably more advanced than that available to the Russian forces and indeed available to Ukrainian tanks who are using very similar Russian or Soviet tanks at the moment. You mentioned there the kind of level of cautious optimism, I guess, around this. And I'd like to just talk a bit more about that. I spoke to one expert who said that she actually thought the Russians might try to bring forward any offensive or try and really make a push to make some strategic gains before the tanks arrive. And I know another expert told our senior reporter, Richard Holmes, that he thought that the tanks themselves could be targeted on their way in during delivery process in a bid to wipe them out. It's not going to be straightforward, is it, all of this? No, no, not at all. The Russians clearly have an eye on probably as much as the sort of propaganda value um, as the practical value of trying to somehow interrupt the supply process or target these weapons before they're even in place. You know, you're probably right. And there is likely to be significant advantage for the Russians if they can make gains on the battlefield before these tanks are ready. And we think that the very earliest, they're not going to be in place until the end of March, the beginning of April. You know, there, there are a very large number of variables here. But one possible matter that will help the Ukrainians is that they know these tanks are coming now. They at least have an idea of a certain number of these weapons being on their way, which could allow them to use the existing tanks that they have to try and repel a Russian spring offensive in the knowledge that they have reinforcements which could be used to either continue to harry and harass the Russians or indeed spearhead their own spring offensive, which is another thing that is widely expected. Serena, how has Russia responded to all of this? Well, let's say it's been kind of less than impressed by these pledges of tanks from the West and has kind of dismissed them as having any real bearing on what's going on in Ukraine. One thing that will be interesting is whether Russia deploys its T-14 Armata tanks, which is its most modern tank. 
and they kind of mark a, a huge improvement from their from their existing stock of, of Soviet era tanks. They're highly automated with remote controlled machine guns. And I think Russia once said that, you know, this tank could form the basis of a robotic tank in the future. You know, they've been described as a super tank. However, they may not be that super. Their production has been beset by a lot of problems. And the UK MOD believes only a small number have actually been produced, possibly in the low tens. There's evidence of them being readied or used in Ukraine, but they haven't yet been deployed. And if they are deployed, you know, in line with what Kahar was saying, I think it will be seen as more of a a propaganda move from Russia rather than having any kind of massive fighting capability on the battlefield. Russia are clearly seeing this as another sign of Western involvement in the conflict. Kahal, could this escalate tensions between Russia and the West? We saw the Russian ambassador to the US before the tank donation was announced calling it a blatant provocation against Russia. Yeah, I mean, this this goes back really to the strategic and tactical significance of the tanks themselves. I mean, the Russians are self-evidently never going to be happy about anything that is put in Ukraine's way by the NATO countries. And, you know, the conflict shows so far that NATO's weapons have tended to be more effective than those that Russia has itself. So, I mean, you could argue, for example, that the American-made HIMARS rockets, of which we've heard a good deal, have been a game-changer, have been the sort of thing that could provoke a more extreme response from the Russians. And, well, to be blunt, we haven't really seen that from the Russian side, have we? So we have to wait and see. I mean, there is no doubt that the provision of these tanks is an escalation in the type of help that the West is willing to provide Ukraine. But at the same time, you know, we can still see that that reticence, you know, uh, or, or a sort of degree of caution from the Western capitals, uh, not going too far, whatever that might be. But for example, we've already heard from both Washington and Germany this week that they're not going to countenance supplying fighter jets to Ukraine. This is a, a theme that we've had uh, almost since the beginning of the conflict, but they are underlining for, you know, quite strongly that they're sending the tanks, but they're not going to think about fighter jets at this stage. The at this stage part of that sentence is probably quite important, but for now at least, they seem to be drawing the line at on-the-ground weaponry that will hopefully lend further advantage to the Ukrainians. I wonder if some listeners will be wondering whether handing over tanks from places like the UK at a time of heightened international tension is something that that everyone feels comfortable with. How much of an impact will this have on, say, the British Army's defences here in the UK? I think, as with all these things, there's a balance to be struck. It is a really fundamental point. Do you help an ally to the extent that you leave yourself potentially weakened should you find yourself drawn into this conflict or another. There's been significant signs this week that Washington is not happy with the state of the British Army, at least. We're led to believe that the Americans no longer view the British Army as a a quote-unquote top-tier fighting force. 
And to be blunt, I think handing over 14 Challenger tanks to the Ukrainians is is not going to tip the balance one way or the other in in that regard. What is apparent is that the British military and, and perhaps the army in particular has been underfunded or has not had sufficient investment in recent years to keep up to some extent with its allies and certainly to sort of acquire the most the most modern equipment. I mean, I think I'm right, and Serena will um, confirm it or not, that the Challenger tanks that we're supplying, they first came on the scene in the 1990s. You know, of course, every tank, every sort of weapon platform gets modernized and enhanced over the years. And, uh, you know, these are the best we can offer. But nonetheless, they've been around a while. And I think on that point that Carl just made, even with the Leopard 2s, it's not just a Leopard 2. There are various models and updates. I believe Germany is sending a fairly modern version of the tank, but we don't yet know if other countries will send some of their older versions. And I suppose another point to consider is even if giving away some of our own tanks might have some kind of impact on you know the UK's own fighting capabilities, it is equally important to show that we are united with other Western countries in supporting Ukraine and in defeating Putin, you know, this kind of strength in numbers idea and to show that we're not simply going to stand back and watch it unfold. I think that's a really good point. Serena, Carl, thank you so much for joining us, for sharing that information. I think we're all going to be better at distinguishing our lepers from our Abrams now. So thank you very much for that. Thank you. Thanks, Molly. Reporting like this is what we do every single day at I. So if you want to commit to staying up to date in 2023 with trusted, impartial journalism, straight from our team of award-winning reporters and commentators, join us now and get unlimited access to all of our journalism, including subscriber-only newsletters from expert columnists and daily puzzles. For more coverage of this and other news, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to I. I is for people with open minds. Our commitment to you is politics without the spin, news coverage without an axe to grind, and lively opinion so you hear all sides of the argument. I for open minds. Subscribe today. It's been described as one of Britain's most spectacular rivers. The waters of the River Wye begin their journey in the Cambrian Mountains of central Wales. As it snakes its way through the scenic countryside and towns on the English border, it provides a home for many species of birds, otters and even Atlantic salmon looking for a safe place to spawn. As it passes medieval abbeys and castles before finishing its journey in the Severn Estuary, it's easy to see why it's been voted one of Britain's best waterways. That's why, when experts say that the why is dying, people take notice. This is the story of how the river has become symbolic of the critical state of the UK's waterways. We're now joined by our science and environment correspondent, Tom Borden. Tom, tell us a bit about the River Wye. 
Why is it so fantastic? It has a huge role to play, both for wildlife and for humans. It supports an enormous array of sort of interdependent wildlife, you know, everything from swans and kingfisher to salmon and otter and heron and all sorts of insects, dragonflies and so on. And at the heart of this ecosystem is the water crowfoot or the ranunculus, which basically provides food and shelter for the insects and some of the some of the sort of creatures at the at the bottom of the food chain, which then in turn will attract, uh, help to feed fish and attract birds and, and all that kind of thing. So it's really a, a wonderful wildlife resource, if you like, in its own right, but one that attracts people from miles away. You know, people even used to flock there to canoe and to swim, as well as walking along and just sort of marvelling at it. But in recent years, unfortunately, the, the numbers of people that are canoeing and swimming has said to have decline quite significantly just because people are worried about getting infections and you know from the water so apart from the the loss to to the wildlife itself there is a human cost as well and which communities are connected to it can you tell us a bit about where it sort of spans it's the fourth longest river in in the country and it's 150 miles long it runs from the source in the cambrian mountains in mid wales all the way down to the Severn Estuary in the British Channel. So it takes in a fair sweep of the country. So why is it under threat, Tom? What's happening there? The main issue is actually chicken droppings. The River Wye and, and the area around it is the UK's capital, chicken farm capital, if you like. There's, there's an estimated 10 million chickens living, living around the River Wye in, in intensive kind of industrial chicken farms, and they produce huge numbers of droppings which have phosphorus in them uh, and a lot of these droppings find their way into the local environment and then they get washed into the river and what they do then is they fertilize the phosphorus from them fertilizes algal blooms uh, algae can grow incredibly fast and very thick and what it does is it, it blocks out the light so that a lot of other plants in the in the water and and can't get the, the light that they need. And it also sucks an awful lot of oxygen out of the system. So that deprives other wildlife of, of oxygen that they would need to survive. That's the sort of the thing that makes the why unusual, if you like, but it, it's part of a, a much bigger problem because it, it also suffers from phosphorus runoff from fertilizers as well. And also from sewage dumps of because human human sewage also in the same way contains a lot of phosphorus. A lot of this information is coming from a local group, isn't it, Tom? I believe they're called the Friends of the Upper Y Citizen Science Project. That's right. Tell us a bit about what they've been doing and what they found. Yeah, so I mean, there's actually quite a few groups working on this because it's it's such a, a big area of concern. But um, the Friends of the River Wai were, were particularly helpful because they have a group of citizen scientists that have been working with Cardiff University. They've, Cardiff University scientists have sort of trained them up, if you like, and given them some guidance on, on how to, to go about their activities. And they've been collecting huge numbers of, of samples all the way along the river, the, up, the upper Wai, and, and, and they've shared those findings with us. And, and they're they're quite concerning, you know. They've they've taken 
one sort of section of the readings they've taken, it's a hundred and uh, sorry, a thousand nine hundred and ninety-three samples, so nearly two thousand samples from seventy-three sites along the Upper Y throughout twenty twenty-two, and they found that forty-six percent of those had high levels of phosphorus, and fifteen percent had very high levels. One man that you've been speaking to for all this, Tom, is Fergal Sharkey. Now, some of our listeners might recognise the name, but not in connection with the River Wye. Absolutely. He's, he's probably best known, actually, for his, his hit, A Good Heart, which actually went to number one in 1985. And so for people that were around at that time, Fergal Sharkey is, is actually quite a big name. He was also in a group called The Undertones in the in the 70s and 80s before then. Did a song called Teenage Kicks, which John Peel said was his all-time favourite song. So he's got he's got some some proper music cred in his previous kind of existence, if you like. <laughs> uh, but these days he he uses he absolutely loves fly fishing. He's become a very vocal defender and campaigner for for rivers and being so well known among so many people he's gives him you know huge power to to help the situation we've talked a lot about the problems that the Y is experiencing i think lots of people will be wondering about the solutions what's being done to try and tackle this is there anything in particular that the chicken farmers can be doing it's a very concerning story but there are some kind of glimmers of hope for example, Simon Evans, who's head of the, the Y and Usk Foundation, that's the charity that's sort of fundamentally in charge of looking after the River Y. About a year ago, he said we're on the edge of a precipice in relation to the Y. He said that people won't be able to swim in it, dogs will be poisoned and that kind of thing. He was incredibly bleak about it. And I asked him sort of a year on, what does he think now? And he, he says we're still at risk of degradation that's so great it could render the river to a shadow of its former self. So he's, he's definitely kind of thinking that there's still a potential problem. But he does also say that there seems to be a growing appreciation among farmers and uh, landowners that, that we have a real problem here. And it's still too early to, to be too optimistic, but he does kind of get some sort of hope from the fact that, that, that people seem to be starting to take note. Like personally, he's working with landowners and councils on the way to reduce flooding. And that's a big problem because a lot of it comes from flooding, washing this phosphorus into the river. One of the things they're doing is trying to essentially soften the ground in the surrounding areas because the harder the ground is, the more the water flows off into the river. So the more you can kind of soften it, then the more likely you know, it is to kind of stop stuff cascading in, into the water. And they're also involved in mapping water flows so they can sort of see exactly what path the droppings and so on are taking. And so that might be able to help them sort of reduce the flow again. And also looking at ways of capturing more of the, you know, the droppings in the first place and, and sort of storing them in a safer way. So it's very early stages and there's lots to still be learned about how to tackle the problem, but there are some encouraging signs. And some of the chicken farmers individually have been quite proactive about this, haven't they, Tom? That's right. I mean, you know, it remains to be seen whether they keep their word, if you like, but, but one major chicken producer in the area that produces two million chickens every week last month pledged to ensure that its supply chain would not contribute to, you know, the phosphorus problem in the River Wye by 2025. So, 
yeah, that's a, that's a great pledge. And obviously it just remains to be seen whether it's kept. Is this a situation which we're only seeing in the Y or are there other parts of the country where this is a problem? It's absolutely not just the Y. And the reason that this story is so concerning uh, is because it is it is a barometer of a much wider sort of problem. It's got the, the chicken droppings issue is more of an issue with the Y, but the problem of fertilisers and human sewage dumps is is one that's across the country like last summer for example lake windermere which is the biggest biggest lake in in britain went green and people were wondering why that was and it was the same issue it was to do with sewage and fertilizer fueling sort of massive growth of algae and there's a study done last year by the Environment Agency, which only looks after England, but I think it seems to be the case that its findings could more or less apply to the whole of the UK because it's a UK-wide problem. And that found that only 14% of England's rivers have good ecological status. Only 14% have water that's essentially up to scratch. 14.14%. That's right, yeah. That's pretty worrying, isn't it? Absolutely. This story has really resonated with people a lot more than the vast majority of the stuff that I've written. Wow. And so what about the appetite for change around the rest of the country? It sounds like the Y has some great initiatives to try and roll this problem back. But is there going to be any change on a national level? The government has indicated that it sees this as a big issue that's to be dealt with. So the Environment Agency, which is the, the bit of the government that's sort of fundamentally responsible for this, told me that they, they're working with various parties in in Wales and also natural England as well in England and local authorities so it seems like you know it's quite a cross-party group of people if you like and they're working through a nutrient management board to find solutions to tackle phosphate levels in the catchment sounds slightly management speaky but basically <laughs> it sort of suggests that they recognize it's a problem and they're and they're trying to tackle it in Wales and England you know across the UK involving councils and, and all the rest of it so proper coherent approach. We saw, didn't we, last year, Tom, so many headlines about sewage being pumped into Britain's seas, Britain's waterways. With this problem as well, would you say that we are in a real state of crisis here? I think it's fair to say that we are in a state of crisis, yeah. I think there's a lot of people would would say that, and I think they'd be right. Tom, thank you so much. It's been fascinating to learn about this really crucial issue which should be on all of our radars. No, thanks for having me. For daily coverage of the most important news from across the world, go to inews.co.uk forward slash podcast and get 20% off a digital subscription to i. We'd love to hear any comments or suggestions, so drop us a line at podcast at inews.co.uk and don't forget to write us a review on your favourite podcast apps. I'm Molly Blackall. You can follow me on Twitter at Molly Blackall and on Instagram at Molly.Blackall. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week.